We'll hear argument next in number 937659, Louise Harris versus Alabama. You may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice Rehnquist, and may it please the Court. Alabama's capital sentencing scheme provides for two decision-makers to determine sentence, a jury and a judge. The legislature and the courts of Alabama have always said that the jury has a sentencing role to play. The Alabama Code addresses both jury and judge with provisions on how to determine sentence. The legislature intended that, quote, juries play a major role in capital cases in Alabama, as the Alabama Supreme Court noted in its landmark decision in Beckley State. The Court confirmed in Ex parte Williams that that role cannot count for nothing in Alabama's system, with the judge as the ultimate sentencing authority following the jury's completion of its significant part. Johnson v. State, the Court of Criminal Appeals, said that an Alabama capital jury must be death qualified precisely because it plays a, quote, key role in the sentencing process. And despite the State's suggestion to the contrary in its brief, a trial court's rejection of a jury's advisory verdict is always understood and referred to in the case law as an override of that verdict. But that certainly isn't technically correct, is it? I mean, because the, the, no one claims that the jury has final authority in the event the judge didn't act. That's correct. The jury does not so have not final like authority. It's not like Florida. It is like Florida. Um, the Alabama Supreme Court has said consistently, actually, that uh, Alabama is virtually identical to Florida in that it is a dual sentencing state. It does not have, the jury does not have final sentencing, sentencing authority. But it is a constituent censor. Um, as this Court has recognized in Espinoza, that in Florida the jury is a constituent censor, and Alabama has said that our system is virtually identical to that. And the Alabama courts have said repeatedly that the jury verdict and the jury, uh, the capital sentencing jury, has a very significant role to play. And that can be discerned from uh, both the statutory provisions and the case law in Alabama. The statutory provisions are addressed um, in 13A546, for example, to the capital sentencing jury on how it is to determine sentence. And that includes um, the weighing and consideration of aggravation and mitigation, the returning of a, a verdict only under certain circumstances, that is, when seven, at least seven jurors vote that death is the, life is the appropriate punishment, or ten, that death is the appropriate punishment. And if those numbers aren't reached, um, a new panel must be a panel because a verdict would not have been reached by the first sentencer. The state's attempt in this case to transform the life without parole recommendation of this constituent sentencer into a fact in mitigation is inconsistent, thus, with the history and the logic of Alabama's capital sentencing on, on the facts of this case, can you tell me, um, for the four defendants, were there four different juries? That's correct. Well, actually, one of the defendants, the co-defendant in this case, uh, pleaded guilty in exchange for his testimony. All right. Uh, it, with, in the jury, was it Stockwell? Was the, the, was the trigger man? Um, th- that jury also recommended life. That's correct. What, what was the division there? Was it seven to five as well? Yes, it was. But a different jury than Harris's jury. That's correct. Thank you. That's correct. Um, and it is impossible to tell, based on what this judge did, why this jury was rejected. The jury's verdict was rejected in Mrs. Harris's case. Um, no explanation was given in Mrs. Harris's case of why the jury's life without parole verdict was not. Well, I, t- I take it that's consistent with Alabama law. The, 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 the Alabama courts have never required an explanation from the judge as to why he rejected the jury's verdict. 
And that's, that's exactly right. And that's why Mrs. Harris is here today. Because what Alabama law has done is, in essence, created a dual sentencing system, but done nothing to regulate the relationship between the states. Well, you, you call it a dual sentencing system, but the, the statute says, while the jury's recommendation concerning sentence shall be given consideration, it is not binding upon the court. Here the trial judge recited that he had considered the jury's recommendation. Surely the statute doesn't require any more. Statute does not require any more to use this right. What's your authority for thinking the Constitution requires any more? Because this Court's jurisprudence under the Eighth Amendment has always said that procedures by which a death penalty is imposed must be reliable. In um, Godfrey v. Uh, Georgia, for example, this Court said that a state must tailor and apply its law in a manner that avoids arbitrariness. If the, if the jury were out of this picture entirely and just had the judge with the standards that the judge has given, there would be no constitutional infirmity. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. In Alabama, it is free consistent with federal law to withdraw the jury from this process. It's also free consistent with federal law to withdraw the judge from this process. What it cannot do is have two sentencers, both of whom are governed by the Eighth Amendment, and have no connection whatsoever between them. Well, what, is the, what is the constitutional requirement? You've said that the particular standard that Florida uses that's been called the tether standard, that that's not constitutionally required. But I don't think you identified uh, what is the constitutional minimum. Um, that's right. The tether standard is not itself constitutionally required, but this Court has recognized it is constitutionally acceptable. There are a number of valid standards that Alabama could apply. What's the least? The least standard might be that um, the... Uh, the jury's uh, verdict is rejected if there's some reasonable basis for rejecting that. Or if no reasonable person could differ that life was not the appropriate punishment. Or another minimal basis could be that the jury's verdict was itself considered a mitigating factor, as some of the courts have done in Alabama, because they literally do not know how to factor this jury verdict into the sentencing consideration. What, 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 why, what about just disagreeing with the jury? I, mean, it, I can understand the need for a reasoned rejection of the jury verdict if the jury verdict itself were a reasoned verdict. Was it? Did the jury give reasons why it, uh, why it thought that the death sentence should not be imposed? The jury is not required under Alabama law to specify aggravation and mitigation, though there is no reason in this so case... So it just comes in and says, we, re we recommend life. Uh, what could the judge possibly say to explain his disagreement except to say, I disagree, not knowing the reasons the jury said that? How can you explain the reason for your rejecting? His reason is, I see it differently. Justice Scalia, I, I disagree would be, I weigh the aggravation differently against the mitigation to come up with a different, a different response. Alabama law requires... Doesn't he say that implicitly, simply by saying, in my view, the death penalty is, is, is the right one? But Alabama law requires the judge to do something else. It's not just enough to say aggravation outweighs mitigation because the statute requires something else. The statute requires that somehow that jury verdict be factored into the, into the calculus, be factored into the process. No, it doesn't require it. It requires that he consider it. And our contention is... And he did. Did, did he consider it? He, this just trial judge did say that he considered the verdict. And he disagreed with it. And he clearly must have disagreed with it. What more could he possibly have said because to show why he disagreed with it since, since he didn't know the basis on which it, was, it, it itself was made? He said nothing about what may have been improper about this verdict. And when there are two sensors which Alabama has created, I consider it is simply not constitutionally sufficient. If this court, if the trial judge had said, um, with regard to aggravation and mitigation, I did what I was supposed to do, but didn't say what that was, that wouldn't be sufficient. And this court has recognized in other, in other contexts that simply saying, I did something such as, um, I found this case to be 
heinous, atrocious, and cruel is not enough when that doesn't provide sufficient guidance to the sentencer to make a sentencing decision, and that's what we have here. But the role that the jury has here seems to be a familiar one, and this is not unknown. It is like the advisory jury in equity. If you look at Federal Rule 39C, you will see an advisory jury that is not binding on the judge that he will consider or she will consider for the value he or she thinks it has. So why isn't, if, and that's certainly compatible with the Constitution, why should this be regarded differently? Because the Eighth Amendment requires some guided discretion of the censor. And here we have a second censor has to evaluate the judgment of the first censor and has absolutely no idea how to take that into consideration, which allows for arbitrariness. And that's evidenced by... Um, no more arbitrary than if the judge were alone during the sentence. And if the judge were alone during the sentence, Justice Ginsburg, we wouldn't have an issue here. There would not be a problem of a disconnection when there is a disagreement between the censors. And Alabama is free to set up that system if it wishes. This court said in Johnson v. Mississippi that there is no perfect procedure by which a state can set up its capital sentencing scheme. But it cannot set up a scheme that's premised in any way on caprice. And that's what we have here, because two censors are required. Um, the jury verdict in the jury in this case is very much like a penalty phase jury in other states where there is no additional censor, where the judge is not involved. It is death qualified. It's got to be properly instructed. It has to hear only admissible evidence and then return a verdict only under certain circumstances. And as I said, the code provision is addressed to the jury. Is, is your client somehow worse off because a jury made a recommendation of life? She's worse off under the scheme that, yes, I, that Alabama worse, worse off than if there'd been no jury at all. But we cannot look, Justice Kennedy, at the scheme as if there is no if jury. We look at just, just that because Justice Ginsburg was asking you, what if there were just a, a judge sitting? And so my question is, uh, is your client really worse off uh, than if there were no jury at all? Here's a jury who tells the judge, seven to five, we think it should be life. Uh, how is she worse off than if there had been uh, no jury at all? I think she would not be worse off if we just had a jury involved in censoring, sentencing in Alabama or if no, we that, just that, had... that's not my question. The I'm question sorry. is, why is she worse off under the present system? Because she was sentenced to death under a process that was unreliable. Alabama law requires that that jury... Um, be involved in this Why is it process? less reliable if a, if a judge has a, uh, an opinion to take into account? Because, precisely because the advisory verdict of an Alabama jury is not simply an opinion, and Alabama law has never treated it as simply an opinion, but it is treated it as... I, I assume that that's what you're complaining about. Let's, let's say it was just an opinion. Is your client any worse off? If it was just an opinion, no. If it was just um, a... Well, then how is she any worse off under this procedure where it's even more than an opinion? It seems to me that that's even a, a, a more protection for her. Because it's more than of an opinion, Justice Kennedy, because it's more than an opinion, it is the advisory verdict of a censor. And you asked, in this case, is she worse off? We have no idea why the judge rejected the advisory verdict of life without parole in this case, for which there was considerable basis um, for returning that verdict. This jury heard evidence that Mrs. Harris was a mother of seven, that she worked three jobs while she uh, was raising her family, that she had no prior criminal history whatsoever, and that this, this, uh, the killing in this case occurred after a history of domestic strife between husband and wife, including incidents in which her husband had hit Mrs. Harris uh, in the head, threatened her with a gun, and where there had been a separation and an application for divorce. Under those circumstances, the jury was required under Alabama law 
to return a considered verdict, an advisory verdict, of what the appropriate punishment was. And Alabama law requires, the statute requires that the judge do more here than simply consider aggravation and mitigation. And this Court has recognized in cases such as Espinosa v. Florida or Gardner v. Florida that when the Alabama, excuse me, when a trial judge must do more than simply consider aggravation and mitigation, there is another issue that this Court must take into account, which can lead to an arbitrary sentence of death, which is what happened in this case, which is why she is worse off. When one looks at the sentencing orders returned in the cases in Alabama, it is impossible to have any kind of consistent formulation as to how the jury was made part of the process. Well, is that a, is that a different argument? I mean, you've been, you've been arguing about the unreliability of what happened in this case and can happen in other cases. But are you also making the argument that, in fact, different trial judges are applying different standards in evaluating what the jury's verdict uh, actually is? Not, not merely that some happen to uh, give great weight in a given case and others happen to give little weight, but that there are different legal standards that they are bringing to bear in deciding what to do with the jury verdict. Is that also your argument? Certainly, Justice. Well, I went back, and here's where I want you to help me out. I went back through, admittedly, somewhat quickly this morning, but I went back through the examples that you gave in your brief, and I found examples um, in which some trial judges are saying that they consider the jury's recommendation uh, as a mitigating circumstance. I found some in which... They simply don't say that. They don't say that they don't consider it a mitigating circumstance. They just don't describe it. Uh, And I found a third category in which judges, whether they call it a mitigating circumstance or not, in fact have said that they gave great weight to the jury verdict. Do those three examples uh, ground an inference that there are different legal standards being used in the importance given uh, to the verdict as distinct from uh, simply different, different treatments depending on what, in individual cases, judges happen to think the, the value of the jury recommendation is. Is there a, is they, as they say today, is there a systemic difference based on legal standards, or are there just varieties of applications which vary according to the evidence? I think there are different legal standards. I think there are some judges who say... Well, can you, can you infer that from the examples that I gave, or am I missing something? Is there something more in here? I think there are other cases which are also useful to look at. For example, there are some judges who say, um, I reject the, uh, the jury's ver- uh, life without parole verdict because there's a reasonable basis for doing that. And there are other judges who say, um, I reject the jury's verdict even though there is a res- reasonable basis for the jury's verdict. They approach it in a completely different way. And they also take it into account in a different way. Some do treat it as a mitigating factor, as Your Honor suggested. Some treat it in a way that we just don't even know. Yeah, but it doesn't follow from the, from the latter instance that they're not giving it the same weight that they would give it if they called a mitigating circumstance. I don't think, it, it, I don't think we can infer much from that. But you say there are examples in which some judges say, I follow it because it is reasonable, implying, or because there's a reasonable basis for it, implying that there would be a sort of heightened standard of persuasion to reject it, whereas others say, although it is reasonable, I reject it without indicating that there is any heightened standard for rejection. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And you give me, and and you don't necessarily have to do it this moment, but you could do it after argument, could you give me two cases illustrating those those two approaches? Yes. The first, except for the first question that you mentioned was, I follow it, and the cases we have here are where they haven't followed it, but I can give you examples of where those, there's a different heightened standard. That's exactly right. 
And if Mrs. Harris was sentenced according to one of those standards, she might come out with one sentence. And if she was sentenced according to a different one of those standards in a different courtroom, she might come out with a different So you're, you're really making a kind of an equal protection argument based on, on disparate legal standards rather than simply a variety of treatment. I think we're making both of those arguments. Or you're, that, making, you're making a sort of Furman argument that, uh, that uh, sentencing shouldn't be uh, flukish and that it's flukish unless uh, all of the judges are treating the uh, jury's recommendation the same way. It is flukish, Justice Scalia, because Alabama has announced no standard to guide the discretion. That's exactly right. But the same flukishness occurs uh, whenever you allow a jury or a, or a judge sentencer to take account of mitigating circumstances. And I mean, a, a, haven't we gone down that road in Lockett? And isn't, in effect, allowing the judge to have a jury recommendation which may say, you know, in our view, you should let this person get off without the death sentence, isn't that simply the addition of an additional mitigating factor, which, to be sure, provides for more flukishness, but always to the benefit of the defendant. Alabama... And lock it that that's not only okay, but it's required, at at least... uh, I think we have a very different system here, uh, Justice Scalia, than just the consideration of aggravation and mitigating factors. The calling the jury... If you think the provision of the two sentencers, as you describe them, actually increases or decreases the likelihood of a death sentence in, across the uniform the universe of cases in Alabama? I'm not sure it's possible to say whether it increases or decreases. Um, well, one might ask, uh, what, what, which way does the override more frequently go? There's no question. 95% of the overrides in the state are uh, life without parole verdicts of a jury overridden to death. Whereas if the have... jury does return a recommendation of death, normally the judge accepts that. That's absolutely right, yeah. Justice Stevens. Do we have any indication, we don't have any indication, of how many times the jury recommends life and the judge leaves it alone, although he might come in, if he were left without the jury, might have imposed a death sentence on his own. We don't know. And without knowing that, we really can't project, can we, whether this is this system on the whole, favors defendants or not? We don't know the answer to that question, but I don't think we can talk about whether the system favors defendants when the system has a built-in arbitrary um, aspect to it. What the, the, the Alabama Supreme Court, at least it said, this statute makes the jury's recommendation advisory only, and courts have had experiences with advisory only juries. But you're saying in the death context, an advisory-only jury is inherently arbitrary? It's not necessarily. It's inherently arbitrary in the Alabama system because of what Alabama has created. It has created a constituent sentencer by all of the case law and all of the provisions that are addressed to that um, first sentencer. Certainly, the Eighth Amendment requires something different from what may be required in other contexts where um, some advisory judgment is made. But certainly there are other contexts in the law as well where a second decision-maker is asked, is given some rule or regulation for knowing how to take that first decision-maker's judgment into account. What's, I think the, what's the rule in an equity court? I'm afraid I don't know the rule in an equity court, Justice. you know whether there is a rule? I don't know the answer to that. 
Ms. Friedman, did you raise your equal protection claim before the Supreme Court of Alabama? We raised the 14th Amendment and an a, a Eighth Amendment claim. Too. But was the 14th Amendment, did that, was that just because the 14th Amendment incorporated the Eighth Amendment, or was it in so many words a reliance on the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment? We did not rely specifically on the equal protection clause. Well, then you can't raise an equal protection clause here, claim here. I don't know that we have to well, separate. But, but you answered Justice Souter's question that I, I thought that you were raising an equal protection claim here. Perhaps I understood exactly what question I was being asked. I think the analysis is the same that, uh, and really the most direct analysis I think is under the Eighth Amendment arbitrariness jurisprudence of this Court, which is that um, uh, capital defendants in Alabama are being subjected to an arbitrary process and are being treated inconsistently because of that arbitrary process. And that, I think, is the basis for decision-making here. Um, because Alabama has created a dual sentencing system, that is why the advisory verdict rises to a certain level. It is true that, um, as Justice Ginsburg mentioned before, that the statute itself says this, this advisory verdict is an advisory verdict, it is a recommendation, it isn't binding. But because Alabama has created a second censor, that second censor is also subject to the Eighth Amendment. And because of that, Alabama has left a piece out of regulating the relationship. We are not saying that Alabama need make that advisory verdict binding on the trial court. But what it need to do is regulate the relationship between the censors. When there is a disagreement between the censors, that second censor has no idea how to factor it in. And the problem that arises, as can be seen in the, the different um, orders of the, um, the trial courts, is that without some standard, without some guidance from the Alabama Supreme Court, they just don't even know what it is. They don't know how to make it part of the process at all. And therefore, some treat it as a mediating factor, some treat it as a prior judgment, some try and weigh it into the balance, even though they're not treating it as a mediating factor, and some have a variety of legal standards under which to reject or accept that verdict. That is an inconsistent and arbitrary process. If we assume that that's true, uh, then reweighing by the uh, Alabama Appellate Court is insufficient? It is insufficient, and for two reasons. First of all, what the Alabama Supreme Court does um, in, in its discussion of reweighing is never address what the, uh, the jury's role was in the process, and that's certainly what happened in Mrs. Harris's case. And secondly, Alabama does not reweigh aggravation and mitigation in the way that this Court has understood that term in, in cases such as Clemens. It is said specifically in Lawhorn v. State that it does not reweigh, and that if there are errors below, that um, sentence is sent back to the trial court for the trial court to impose sentence. I was referring to the intermediate appellate court. And that's true for the intermediate appellate court as well, Justice Kennedy. The language of the statute is we do an independent reweighing. And that, um, that language certainly goes to the appellate court's review, which also involves proportionality. But what it does not do is address part of the process that happened below, which is because the judge was required to do more than consider aggravation and mitigation, but also to make that jury verdict a part of the process, which is mandated by statute, the appellate review is insufficient because it does not review what actually happened below. And as to reweighing, um, the, uh, the uh, Alabama appellate courts um, do not do that in the traditional way that this court understands uh, reweighing to take place. Um, and as I, as I mentioned before, in cases such as Espinoza or in, a, in cases such as a, a Flor uh, Gardner v. Florida, the fact that, that aggravation is found to outweigh mitigation does not address an arbitrary element in the process. And that's what we have here with the disconnection between the two censors. Um, this Court has said, in cases going as far back as Greg, that um, the Eighth Amendment limits the discretion 
of the sentencers to minimize the risk of arbitrary action. And what we have in this case is arbitrary action. Because Alabama has required that two sensors be involved in this process, it creates, without some connection between them, um, the risk of arbitrariness. Because there is no standard for that second May I ask, what is your response to the state's argument that the history in Alabama shows that juries were uh, predisposed to acquit white defendants of of uh, murdering black uh, victims or committing crimes, crimes against them, the jury's prejudice would uh, give a tilt the scales in favor of the white defendant, and that they, they needed the judge override to override life, arbitrary recommendations of life in that category of cases. They argue that in their brief. Certainly, the um, judge can form that, that can provide that role. If the Alabama Supreme Court were to announce such a standard as um, racial prejudice, if there was some evidence or suggestion of racial prejudice, or some other kind of um, improper action on the part of the jury. But that has not happened. The Alabama Supreme Court has announced no such standard. And there is certainly no evidence or suggestion in this case that there is any such impropriety um, in the forming of the jury verdict here. It is very critical for this Court to understand that Alabama has created a dual sensing scheme. And the role of that jury, while it is not binding, while it is advisory, is just like the penalty phase um, jury, um, the penalty phase juries in other states in which there is no final ultimate um, authority by a judge. Therefore, because it has... Do I understand your answer to Justice Stevens to be that Yes, that, that probably was uh, the object of this scheme and that it's a legitimate object. It could it's be a legitimate being object. done in the wrong way. It absolutely could be a legitimate object. So on, on your, going back to your answer to Justice Ginsburg, in which you thought one standard might be uh, that the judge could not override uh, unless no reasonable jury could have come to the conclusion that the, that the trial jury did, it would make it more difficult for the, for the judge to perform that function. I'm not sure I understand exactly well, what you're you, saying. Well, you, you accept the legitimacy, I guess, of the state's argument that one of the justifications for this scheme is that there tends to be a racial prejudice in favor of white defendants. Uh, and I go back to your answer to Justice Ginsburg's first question in which she said, well, what might the standard be? One of the examples, as I recall, that you gave was the standard that the judge could only override if he found that no reasonable jury could have concluded as this jury did. So what I'm saying is, I guess it follows on your theory that it would be more difficult um, on, your, on, on a scheme that would be acceptable to you for the judge to perform uh, this, this um, uh, kind of uh, function of eliminating the racial bias in the sentencing juries. I don't think so. I think there could be a standard, clearly, where if there was... It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty tough to, to, overcome, to, to meet a standard that requires a finding that no reasonable jury could have concluded as they did. That's a high standard. That's higher than Tedder. Well, I use that language because it was language in Tedder. There can also be a more minimal standard. require just clear and convincing demonstration. Could, that could be a standard as well. That could certainly be a standard. There's also no evidence that in any case... You know, Hayes was one case which a standard that was set up in the Alabama system or Alabama to announce one that Hayes could certainly meet. There is no evidence that um, that standard applies to any other case, and particularly Mrs. Harris's case, where there is no evidence of racial prejudice whatsoever um, on the part of the jury, and there's no reasonable um, basis evident in this record to determine why that uh, jury's life without parole verdict wasn't reasonable and why it was rejected in this case. Uh, if there are no further questions at this time, I will reserve the rest of my time for a moment. Very well, Ms. Friedman. Uh, Mr. Bierberg, we'll hear from you. 
Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, in Espinoza v. Florida, this Court upheld a Florida's uh, capital murder sentencing scheme, which also included a jury override provision. In doing so, this Court held that the Eighth Amendment does, does not prevent a state from providing for these so-called dual sentencers. Uh, I take exception to that characterization of what Alabama law truly is on that. The statute's clear that only the judge is the senator in Alabama. The jury's advisory verdict is just that. It's an, it's an advisory uh, recommendation as to perhaps what the uh, final sentence should be. Espinoza, this court said that this concept of jury override was constitutional. Now the question probably really boils down in this court is, uh, in, in Florida, they have the tether standard that we've touched on already. In Alabama, we, we have a standard announced by our Supreme Court, the Alabama Supreme Court, saying that if the whole catalog of aggravating circumstances outweigh the mitigating circumstances, then the judge is allowed to, uh, to, to, to sentence others differently from the Is it the, correct, as Justice Scalia put it in one of his questions, that your, your basic position is that it is, if the judge disagrees with the jury, that's a sufficient basis for a different result. Yes, because the judge is the senator. And as the senator under the Eighth Amendment, uh, we have to keep in mind we're on the sentencing side of the Eighth Amendment business, which, uh, as I understand this Court's precedence, allows for discretion. And, and this Court's been very careful to any procedure that uh, cuts back that discretion has been found to violate Eddings and Lockett. Is, is it, do you agree with your opponent's view of what the statistics would show that if the jury recommends death, in 95% of the cases the judge will accept the recommendation, whereas if the jury recommends life, there are a substantial number of cases in which the judge will disagree and act independently and impose death? To date, I believe uh, we have approximately 26 uh, cases in which the judge has uh, chosen to sentence to death over a life without parole recommendation. Um, so I don't, we have third, there are only two or three that, uh, where the judge has set aside a, has uh, imposed a life sentence when the jury recommended death. I cited two or three in the brief. I didn't cite them all, uh, but I, I, I'm not going to argue with the, with the numbers uh, because I don't think that's what we're here about today. Yeah. Uh, we re- rejected the, the uh, statistical approach to these cases in McCleskey. Well, but could you, you tell us in that period where the, uh, you had 26 uh, overrides, how many cases, uh, capital cases were there in which there were potential capital cases were there in which there was no override? No override. I, uh, I don't know that number, um, which is, was the universe, I think, that Justice Ginsburg was talking about. To, to get a true picture of, of it, you would have to know that number where the judge accepts the life without parole recommendation. Sentenced with the, the jury recommended life and the judge left it alone. Yes, you would have to know that number. But I don't think we ought to Even decide. that number would not be significant unless you knew how often the judge independently might have reached a different conclusion. I mean, you have to have cases in which he said, well, I would have imposed death, but given the jury's recommendation, I'll go along. Do you know of any, any such cases? Wow. Um, not to my knowledge, no. And I'm not, I'm not sure we could ever know that, um, frankly. So I, I, I take uh, great exception with the, fact, with the argument that Alabama does not have a standard. It does. The aggravating circumstances must outweigh the mitigating circumstances. Now, that's a different stand before the judge can, can impose the death sentence, which is con- entirely consistent with this Court's Eighth Amendment precedent of, one, on, that, on the narrowing side, 
uh, we, we narrow people who are selected for the death penalty through the use of aggravating circumstances. Under your, your system, can the defendant waive the right to have a, a jury advisory verdict? Yes, sir, he can. And if, uh, and, and if a defendant does that, is the judge's standard in imposing the death sentence any different than if there had been an advisory verdict of life? Namely, that in either, either event, the aggravating must outweigh the mitigating. No, it's the same standard. And I take exception to the characterization that uh, there is two different legal standards going on here. Uh, There aren't. Uh, The the one standard consistently applied by all senators in Alabama is the aggravating circumstances must outweigh the mitigating circumstances. Suppose it were were shown uh, in in this case that in county number one, a judge says, I accept the advisory verdict unless there is a reasonable grounds for upsetting it. Uh, county number two, the judge said, I give uh, very little weight to what the uh, advisory uh, jury jury says. Uh, and uh, similar uh, disparate approaches in various other counties. Would that be a violation of the Eighth Amendment? No, it would not, because the senator is vested with discretion. And, and that's the essence of the discretionary process in whatever weight the senator wishes to give to these various factors that come in in mitigation. But isn't, the, isn't there a distinction between the discretion to give weight according to what the evidence warrants in a given case on the one hand and discretion to consider an aspect of the process as either of no value uh, or of great value? And I thought the, the implication of the way Justice Kennedy phrased his question was that the, um, there, there, was a, there was a difference um, not specific to cases but a difference which amounted to a different legal standard in the manner in which the judges from county to county were evaluating the fact, we'll call it, of the jury recommendation. The the first kind of discretion to take evidence for what it's worth is undoubted. The second kind of discretion is different. Why doesn't that raise a problem either of equal protection or of arbitrariness uh, or, or of arbitrary variation in sentencing? Well, first of all, I don't think the, the, the 14th Amendment equal protection issues before the court. We're up here on the 8th I, I, Amendment. I grant you it doesn't. Okay. I'd like to know what you would say. The arbitrariness versus discretion is, is what we're really at. And, and if Senator A says, I accept the jury's verdict and I'm going to give it some weight, is that a different legal standard than saying, well, I, there's a sliding scale here. I'm well, going let, to let me give it. it. Let me make it clearer then. In, in County 1, uh, the judge says, I always accept a jury's recommendation unless no reasonable jury could have come to that conclusion. In County 2, the judge says, I never accept a jury's recommendation as carrying any more weight than, in fact, I think it's worth based on the individual circumstances of the case. Assuming you have that kind of a variation, A, do you have a, 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 an Eighth Amendment problem? B, if it were before us, would you have an equal protection problem? A, I don't think you have an Eighth Amendment arbitrariness because what you have is the Senate's are giving this particular fact different. No, no, you're changing my hypo. Either that or I'm not making my hypo clear. In the first case, in County A, the judge says, my legal standard is... I always accept the recommendation unless I conclude that no reasonable jury could have concluded as this one did. In County B, the judge says, I accept it or reject it depending on the weight that I think it's worth. I don't have, in effect, any override standard at all. 
Now, those are two different legal standards. Uh, is there an Eighth Amendment problem uh, or an equal protection problem? Perhaps it would be an equal protection problem in that similarly situated uh, defendants are being treated differently. Why, why shouldn't we consider the same uh, disparity under, under our, uh, our non-arbitrariness jurisprudence under the Eighth Amendment? Because I think what you, what you have to look at is how the process in Alabama works. I mean, well, certainly I, I, under, I am, under that it's, it's, working, it's working on different legal standards in different counties. I, well, that's that's the doesn't that infect the validity of the standard of, of the of the process under the Eighth Amendment? Well, I don't think there are different legal standards. Each no, but my stick to my hypo. My hypo uh, it does in, involve two different legal standards. Eighth Amendment problem. Yes. Okay. It would be. There's one aspect of the, this case I wish you would address. You have taken the position very clearly that the jury is advisory only, the judge gives it whatever credit she thinks it deserves. And yet this very sentencing judge that has full responsibility for the sentence says as far as guilt or innocence that the jury came in uh, with a guilty verdict. The court has no reason to go behind the guilty verdict of the jury and will not do so. So the judge is taking no responsibility at all for the basic conviction, and yet says, as far as the jury is concerned on sentencing, there I'm not going to give it any credit because I find that the aggravating circumstances outweigh the mitigating circumstances. I can understand a system that says the judge has to say, yes, I agree with the basic conviction, and then go on. But here uh, the judge is saying, I'm going to leave it to the jury on the basic guilt or innocence? Well, I think on the basic guilt or innocence, I think a reasonable interpretation of that is I find that the evidence is sufficient not to grant a motion for new trial. Isn't that Alabama law that a judge could not set aside a jury verdict on a question of guilt or innocence unless the motion, unless there was sufficient to grant a motion for new trial or judgment of acquittal under traditional standard? Correct. I mean, I, I think that's what he's saying there. I think in the in the sentencing portion. I have no question about that. That he has to leave the jury verdict of guilty alone. My question is, can he sentence a person to death unless he is also? prepared to say, I would have reached the same result that the jury did on guilt. On, on guilt? Oh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm speaking about his authority when it comes to sentences, sentencing. Is it rational, is it acceptable for a judge to say, without committing myself on the question of guilt or innocence? In other words, to say, I might have found this person innocent, yet I'm going to give him a death sentence. Yes, I think it is consistent, because when you go to the sentencing hearing, additional information concerning the defendant, uh, his uh, character, and, or her character in this case, and the involvement in the crime, in other words, those, those mitigating and aggravating circumstances come before the sentencer, the judge, and, and that judge can then weigh those factors back and forth. And that's what this judge did in this case. I, let me just quote on uh, page 6 of the joint appendix. Well, even, even without those, I don't suppose it's irrational to say, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure who did this, but whoever did it deserves the death penalty. This was a horrible, 
heinous crime. I, I can conceive that. And if the judge says it's really not my, not my role in this state system to decide who did it, but I do know that whoever did it deserves the death penalty. The jury, having found that this person did it, this, this person deserves the death penalty. There's nothing irrational about that, is there? No, there isn't. And, in fact, I think that's what the, the judge said in this particular case, quoting from page 6 of the joint appendix, while there is evidence that others were involved and this defendant did not pull the trigger, her participation was such that, but for her, there probably would have never been a killing. She planned it, provided the financing, and stood to benefit the most. So I think that showed, that's, that was one of the issues, questions brought up below. I thought that the question here, I'm going back to your statement that there is a standard yes. because of the mitigating. And I thought that their point is that the Alabama courts have not told their judges a simple thing. Judge, consider this a mitigating factor like the other ones and weigh it as you would any other mitigating factor. Alternative two, judge, this isn't a mitigating factor. What this is, just keep in mind that other human beings hearing this evidence have decided differently and give that whatever weight in your mind you feel ought to be given to the fact that 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, or 12 have decided differently from you. Now, those really are different things. Judges in the first case do know how to weigh, and judges in the second case all the time know how to take into account the fact that other human beings might decide this matter differently. But the Alabama Supreme Court, they say, has not told the judges whether to do the one or the other or a third. And what they think is appropriate is guidance. And the question then boils down to, does the Eighth Amendment require that guidance? Well, they're not saying a lot of guidance. They say just that much. Tell them whether it's another mitigating factor or tell them whether you go to it with the state of mind that you might have with new trial, uh, directed verdict, uh, any other situation where you know that other jurors. Give them that much guidance is what they're saying. And what I want, I'm putting their argument, I think, as I understand it, or at least one of their arguments, and I want to see what your response is directly. Our response would be that, that, the, that the Alabama Supreme Court, in effect, has given that guidance. Here, now, I didn't see that one. That I didn't see. I, I did say that in a case which didn't involve an advisory jury, they talked about aggravating and mitigating circumstances. What's the case where they say, judge? Treat this, recommend, this jury recommendation as you would any other mitigating factor. What's the name of the case where they say that? Now, you won't find that case because the Alabama Supreme Court has not determined that the advisory verdict is a mitigating circumstance. Exactly. Nece necessarily. It, well, leaves that or isn't it? it leaves that to the discretion of the senator. And we're saying that that, that that is the appropriate place to leave that discretion. But I, I thought in answer to a series of questions that Justice Souter and I were posing, that you said that if there were different prevailing practices in different counties on just this sort of legal issue, there would be an Eighth Amendment violation. We were hypothesizing different legal standards. But has, and in haven't we come now from the hypothesis to reality based on your answers to Judge Pryor's questions? Judge Pryor's question. No, I don't believe we have. In that we're, we're still saying that the sentencer is free to consider this jury's advisory verdict and consider it in a manner which the Eighth Amendment allows that discretion to do so. And that happens all the time, even in the finding of guilt. I suppose one jury might... Uh, 
uh, consider that uh, certain uh, certain facts justify a particular infer- inference, whereas another jury would conclude that, that those same facts don't justify another inference. And, and, and I suppose you, you'd have an unjust system if the law required in different counties those divergent findings, but not if, if, if a jury vested with discretion happens to reach them. And that's what you say is, is the situation here. You may indeed have divergences with different judges, but they are not divergences required by law. Exactly. It's exactly that's interesting that you find it happens all the time. Can you think of another example where, in fact, it isn't clear whether a judge is to consider what a jury says as if it's the distinction I'm drawing, a mitigating factor, I understand what kind of thing that is. And it's quite a different thing in a judge's mind to ask questions like, how do I treat this advisory jury in admiralty? How do I treat the opinion of the advisory jury in an equity matter where there's also a legal matter? How do I treat it with directed verdict? How do I treat it on uh, a new trial? Uh, how do I treat the fact that other people have decided differently? That's the kind of discrepancy they're trying to draw a wedge between. And, and I can't think of any other example in the law where I've seen this. They're saying give us that much guidance. Can you think of any, of any, of any other comparable example? What's your mindset, Judge? Is it the mindset of another person has decided this differently than you, or is it the mindset of there is another mitigating factor out there? Aren't those different, or are they? I, I, don't, I, I don't think they're different in that, that now that because the sentencer is allowed this broad Eighth Amendment discretion to consider that advisory verdict as a mitigating circumstance. And another senator might consider that advisory verdict as not arising to that particular level. In other words, but, but that's, that's inherent in discretion. As long as there is discretion in the sentencer, you're going to get different treatments of essentially the same thing. This court can presumably uh, give uh, a greater degrees of discretion to some juries than to others. He may trust one jury more than another. Can he take that into account? He can. Yes, I mean, the ju- yes, I think he, he, could, he could say that... Having sat with this jury, jury for a certain amount of time, he may have some views as to, as to how good the jury is. And he might have some view as to whether or not the life without parole recommendation is a compromised verdict. As in this Any case, rule would, would, would eliminate that degree of discretion, wouldn't it? I mean, if you said... Yes, I think rule, it would. Yes, I mean, well, certainly... There are, there are two, there, again, there are two discretions involved. Let, assume, assume, just to keep it simple, a hypothetical case in which two judges... Are, are sitting on the same case. Uh, jury recommendation comes in. Each judge says, um, I really do not have very much confidence in this jury. Um, uh, the, for various reasons, I, I, I don't think the jury's qualifications are all that great. Uh, and so if, if I'm going to weigh this uh, for what it's worth, I, I'm going to give it much less weight than I would normally give a jury recommendation. One of those judges, however, says, I believe that that is binding on me unless there is clear and convincing evidence uh, or evidence rising to the demonstration of irrationality uh, that, the, that the jury's verdict is wrong. The other one says, I'm just going to take it for what it's worth. Those two judges are going to come to different conclusions in following the jury's verdict, uh, are they not? Yes, I would, and, I would and the, think the, so. And the discretion about how much weight to give the jury's verdict is inherent in the function of weighing evidence. 
But the discretion of uh, – I'm sorry, I'm putting it badly. The the discretion to determine the the sort of value in the abstract of what the jury's recommendation is worth is sort of inherent in discretion to consider evidence. But the discretion to override or not depends upon a legal standard. And in my hypo, there were two different legal standards, and I take it, as you conceded earlier, that would rise if there were such a disparity. One county has a judge taking the one position, one county has a different one. That would rise to the level of, a, of, a, uh, of an Eighth Amendment violation. But in Alabama, we don't have two different legal standards. We don't have any legal standard. There's no basis for any judge considering himself bound by any legal standard, is there? Except to consider it. Except to consider The statute says, consider this. Take this into account when you ultimately decide your sentence. That's and do, is, there, is there not at least an obligation uh, for the state to say, you should not, judges, give this uh, a kind of prima facie weight simply by virtue of the fact that it's a jury recommendation? You should never give it any weight beyond what you think it's worth in the abstract. Isn't, isn't, a, isn't a, uh, a, a capital defendant at least entitled to that degree of illumination? The question is, does, does the Eighth Amendment require that? That's, that's right. And, 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 and if, but imposing if, if the Eighth Amendment doesn't require that, then the door is open for the, for the imposition not merely of, of, of different weights to, to given verdict, but different standards for judging what the verdict of a given weight is worth. Isn't, isn't that so? Well, perhaps the best way I, I know how to answer is, isn't that. Isn't that so? The door is open to that if, if, the, if the Alabama Supreme Court gives no guidance at all. Yes, it would be open to that. Is there any indication in this case that the sentencing judge gave any prima facie weight beyond just considering it to, to this jury's verdict? No, there isn't. In Did fact, this judge in another case indicate that he gives great weight to a jury recommendation? In a different case, uh, Coral, Corral or Coral, he did. Said that was his normal practice. We don't know whether he gave great weight to it here. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say he did not give great weight because in other sentencing uh, recommendations that, that this particular judge has written, he has said, I, I give the jury's uh, recommendation great weight. But that was based on the facts of that particular case. And in, in Coral, at least, the defendant proffered the jury's uh, life without parole recommendation as a mitigating circumstance and the residual doubt as a, uh, because of the length of the deliberations of the jury concerning the, the, the sentence as mitigation. I suppose if a case is tried to a judge instead of, instead of to a jury on the, uh, on the guilt phase, uh, a judge, uh, one judge could say, uh, you know, I consider this, uh, this factor crucial, and another judge could say, I consider this factor of no significance, and that wouldn't render the... Uh, the state system uh, arbitrary or unconstitutional, would it? No, it wouldn't. I mean, that's inherent in any fact-finding. Well, then I'm not sure. So in the conferral of discretion sure. on the fact-finding. Yes, sir. Well, well, then I'm not sure why you concede that there would be an Eighth Amendment violation under our earlier hypothesis. Because as I understood it, we were hypothesizing different legal standards to be applied by the senator when considering it. Well, if the law, in effect, says a judge can do uh, what you say the law, uh, what the judges in reality do, what, what difference does it make? Why is there equal protection or well, a, a, an Eighth Amendment violation in one case and not the other? 
Well, because it, if, if you have, well, the discretion is, this, is in, in the Senate, sir. I, I guess I don't completely follow. If, if we're hypothesizing different legal standards, which we don't have in Alabama, uh, then there's this uh, our, perhaps arbitrariness coming in. And you do not concede that merely the perception of different legal standards is enough to render it unconstitutional? Or do you concede? N- no, I don't. Okay. Absolutely not. Could you tell me, I just don't, I should know this and I don't, did, did the petitioner in this case ask the judge to adopt a specific ruling of law which would state or articulate the weight that was going to be given by him to the jury verdict? Not to my remembrance. If there were an Eighth Amendment violation uh, of the sort that we've been discussing, would it be cured by the independent reweighing that the appellate court did at page 101 of the transcript? I believe so, and, and let me clarify that. The, appellate, the intermediate appellate court doesn't reweigh. It independently weighs the aggravating and mitigating circumstances on appeal. Um, yes, it says at page 101 that after an independent weighing, uh, we find that it's the proper sentence. And, and in Alabama, the appellate courts uh, both... Does the, the appellate court give any weight at all to the judge's determination of the sentence? What the appellate court reviews, Justice Stevens, is the death sentence. And if not, it does not, it, when, it, when, it, when it does that review, does it... Adopt any sort of presumption that the judge was right? No presumption. It starts from scratch as though it were the original sentencer. It does, yes. As if it were the jury. In other words, it doesn't give the jury recommendation any weight one way or the other either. It, it doesn't. It, it, it just starts again, right? Well, but it place, I take it, it places itself, in effect, in the, in the position of the jury, but not the position of the judge? No, I, I think that can't it, be right I, I, because it considers I, the pre-sentence report, doesn't it? Yeah, between the two, the uh, the appellate court puts itself in the position of the judge because then, at that point it the, has the pre-sentence report and these other. But does the does the appellate the appellate court then considers the jury verdict in some sense? In in the, the sense, yes, in the sense that it's reviewing the the death sentence, the imposition of the death sentence, and but, if they but find it does not articulate the standard it uses it uses to determine whether any particular prima facie weight is to be given to the jury recommendation or whether no prima facie weight should be given. Right, it did not. Does it just merely say, in our opinion, the aggravating circumstances outweigh the mitigating, ergo the death sentence is proper? No, it's it's a fairly elaborate scheme of of appellate review. Um, First, they have to determine whether or not there was any error in the sentencing proceeding. Uh, No, assuming no procedural error. But just on the ultimate determination, is it just a totally de novo determination that in the judgment of the appellate tribunal, the mag- aggravating outweigh mitigating, and that's the end of it? Yes. What does it do with the pre-sentence report? Doesn't it consider it, it, that? It, yes, it would consider that in this process of, of the appellate weighing of the aggravating mitigating. Okay, sentence. but that's more than just re-weighing. In other words, it, it goes through a sentencing process that goes beyond re-weighing what the jury weighed. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to get away from the term reweighing. I mean, that, that implies that it's, it's just a new process, uh, different, or repeating the process. And I think our statute, our, well, it does say that it's a, a independent weighing of the aggravating and mitigating circumstances at the appellate level. Plus, we have proportionality review that was alluded to by Ms. Friedman. Thank you. The well, state. I'll just ask one last question. You made reference to this being a compromised verdict, and I didn't quite understand that because I thought the jury just had two choices. 
either life without parole or death. Uh, compromise in the sense that, Justice Stevens, uh, it took him approximately 25 minutes to reach a, a sentencing decision in this, uh, perhaps, and, and I'll admit that I'm speculating on this point, that once they returned the, the guilty verdict, then the compromise, if you will, was to return the life without parole uh, recommendation. And in that sense, a compromise. But, but you're correct. There are only two possible sentences. Yes, sir. State of Alabama would ask this court to affirm the Alabama Supreme Court and uphold uh, Louise Harris's death sentence. Thank you, Mr. Bierberg. Uh, Ms. Friedman, you have two minutes remaining. To respond to the earlier questions about appellate review, uh, the Alabama Supreme Court does not see itself um, as having the authority to impose a sentence de novo or to, uh, to do that kind of uh, reweighing analysis. Whenever independent of um, some kind of error below. If there is an error below, the um, appellate court always sends the case back. So it is not um, a de novo sentencing that the Alabama courts have ever seen themselves authorized to perform. Um, also it does say, after an independent weighing of the aggregating and mitigating circumstances, you say that's not an, in, in a, that's not an independent decision? It's not a, a de novo review of the evidence below. If there is some kind of error below, the appellate courts in Alabama do not see themselves as authorized to fix that. What they do is they send the case back if there is some problem below. To address also uh, Justice O'Connor's point earlier um, about the Coral case and the treatment uh, regarding how much weight was given to the um, jury life without parole verdict, this same judge not only gave it different weight, but treated it as a mitigating factor in one case and not a mitigating factor in another. So that question of from county to county, um, it's so irregular that even the same judge is treating um, the verdict in, in a different way. And I think one thing that we can tell, certainly from the, uh, the uh, practice and history of override in Alabama, is that um, Alabama defendants certainly are not benefiting from it. Ninety-five percent of those um, overrides are, like jury life without parole verdicts, um, overridden into death verdicts. What Alabama has is an otherwise constitutional process that is operating in an arbitrary manner. Uh, and all Alabama court needs to do is state a rule and um, fix that arbitrary problem. If there are no further questions. Thank you, Ms. Friedman. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.